Hey, this is Trisha. And this is Benjamin. You're listening to People Place Power. Welcome to our second episode. Trisha reported this one, so she'll take the lead. This is an episode I'm especially excited about, so thanks for being here. I have to be honest, this was a tough episode to report. It includes stories of violence, rape, and death. Some of these stories are graphic, and this might not be the episode to listen to with kids around. But it's a story that I believe needs to be heard. For me, the story that I'm about to tell you started with a single photograph. This particular photo came into my life at a totally unexpected moment. I was in my second year of college, running between classes on about four hours of sleep, and desperately trying to find time to do my laundry. Life was so busy and so exciting that it felt like there was barely enough time to think. That's the state that I was in when I stepped into a Tuesday evening class back in 2019. And that's when this photo entered my consciousness. The photo's kind of grainy, and it looks like it was taken maybe on a cell phone. I tried to figure out who took it, and I still don't know, actually. But what I do know is that for weeks, I couldn't think about anything else. I showed the photograph to some of my friends, too. My first reaction is angry, lost. Um... Shocked. That's crazy. Can you just describe a little more? What do you see? I can't, it's too powerful. Can't put it in words. I see about 12 women. Naked women. And the women are naked except for flip-flops. Some of them are wearing flip-flops. Long hair going down their backs. They look like all very different ages. Standing in front of a kind of ornate fence. In front of a gated facility. Clearly in some kind of protest. So you see some of the women from the front and some of the women from the back. And the ones that are turned toward the camera. Their facial expressions are just of, I guess, pain and, and wanting to be heard and... It's expressions of, of tragedy. And then in the background, there are some other women who are naked. And you can see like their, yeah, I mean, you can see like their whole, the whole back of their naked body, like... One of them is holding up her hands, wide open, outspread. There are like two, it looks like there's two officers on the other side of the gate. It looks like they're confronting soldiers. It doesn't seem like they're in conversation with them, but it seems like they're protesting like at them. The women in the front are facing the camera and it looks like they're yelling. They're holding this big white banner. The banner is uh, pretty much covering their naked bodies. That's the focal point of the photo. It's on a white banner. So it's red lettering. It's all in caps, and some of them appear to have like this font where blood drips off the words. It says in big red letters, 
Indian Army Indian Rape Army Us. Rape us. Indian Army Rape Us. Indian Army Rape Us. So that last voice you heard was Benjamin. Right. Yeah. I feel like the men on the other side, assuming they are men and assuming they're army people, it looks like they're kind of facing away from the women too. Like, yeah. like We spent a long time staring at this yeah, photo together. Like bowing their heads down. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I wonder why they're there. Like, I wonder if they were sent to talk to these women and yeah. telling them to go away. Right. Or if they're just, like, that's where they're stationed and they are not supposed to leave. Right. Are they just like the... In this episode, I'm going to tell you the story behind this photo. It's a long story, and a complicated one, too. It's the story of a lush, tucked-away corner of India called Manipur, where the Indian army kills without consequence. It's about the law that sanctions indiscriminate violence against India's own citizens. But most importantly, it's the story of the indigenous women who guard their land and their people. For over 60 years, they fought back against one of the largest armies on earth. Their strongest weapon? The power of their own bodies. Welcome to People Place Power, where we explore big questions around activism through the eyes of changemakers around the world. I'm Trisha McCurgie. And I'm Benjamin Swift. Okay, so this story starts in a place called Manipur. Manipur is a state in northeastern India, and it's famous for being just so naturally beautiful. I have been wanting to go there for ages, especially since it's just an hour on the plane from Kolkata, the city in India where my family is from. A few years ago, I even made a whole folder with itineraries, like places to go, and all these photos from Manipur, because I wanted to go so badly. And I pulled it out and I showed it to Benjamin. Okay, so this is Imphal. Um, it's the capital city. So if I flew there, then I would probably land there and okay. start there. But wow. when I looked at visa requirements after all this planning, I realized that it's really tough to go to Manipur. As a foreigner, I would have had to apply for the special permit from the Indian government, which I've heard can be really tough to get. Indian citizens have to do the same thing. The government says this is because there's violence from insurgent groups in the region, but after talking to activists in Manipur, I learned that there's more to it. The Indian government is covering something up. But back to Manipur. If you look at a map of India, there's this group of states in the northeast that's only connected to the main diamond shape of the country by a thin strip of land called the Chicken's Neck. Manipur is one of these states. Manipur stands out from the rest of India for a few reasons. One of them is the large populations of indigenous peoples. I've seen estimates from 35 to 60%. There's also so many different languages and forms of distinctly Manipuri song, dance, and fashion too. Women wear paniks, which are like these brightly colored sarongs. And remember that word, panik, because we'll come across it again. 
I think one of the coolest things about Manipur is that in contrast to the very patriarchal nature of Indian society, Manipuri women hold key decision-making positions in various rungs of society. In a bustling market in the capital city of Imphal, you'll find a dazzling maze of fruits, vegetables, and other goods on wooden tables, each with the woman shopkeeper behind it. 5,000 women run this market. Many of them are pretty elderly. Men aren't even allowed to run businesses. Their job is just to deliver the women's supplies to them every morning. The thing is, the market in Imphal isn't just somewhere to shop. It's been a hub of activism for centuries. That woman you see hunched over selling vegetables could very well be a hero who's defended her people from powerful countries and armies. Here's how. I was born in Manipur, which is translated into Land of Jewels. That's Bina Lakshmi Nepram. She's an author and activist, as well as an indigenous woman from Manipur. She was born and raised there and still calls it home. Bina is a prominent activist. She's founded two nonprofits, written five books, and spoken at the UN, among so many other things. First of all, I would like to pay my respects to each one of you present in this room with a typical indigenous greeting from my state, Manipur. It's called Kurumjari Mayambu. Our deepest respect to all of you. She's also one of my personal heroes. To trace the legacy of Manipuri women's activism, I first needed to learn more about the story of Manipur. It's a little mountain village uh, area at the border of India and Burma. And it was an ancient Asiatic nation state, which was home to about 39 indigenous people. We share resources that we have. <laughs> you know, we, whenever we cook a nice meal, my mother would just put it in a little tiffin and say, go and give it to your neighbor. Like, we can't eat a nice cooked meal at home without sharing it. At first glance, Manipur seems like an idyllic place to grow up. So where I grew up was a lot of rice fields, a lot of lotus ponds a lot of blue mountains and a lot of military because of the conflict which is going on. But overall, um, as a young girl growing up there, I was fairly protected, though I saw a lot of military and I saw a lot of insurgents. But overall, I think when you grow up in a war zone, you just think it's normal growing up like that. You know, the military coming operations, the gunshots that I heard. The gunshots that Venus talking about? They have a long history that stretches back millennia. Manipur, like Bhutan, was an independent Asiatic nation state, like Nepal, like Bhutan, like Thailand. And uh, it was an independent Asiatic nation state with our own history, our own king, our own uh, method of governance, our own constitution. So in 33 AD, the king of the ancient state of Manipur built a palace on the banks of the river surrounded by thick greenery and these gentle sounds of water. He called it Kangla Fort, and it became the center of the Manipuri kingdom. The kingdom fought battles and expanded and did other things that kingdoms do. Centuries passed. That is until the British arrived. In their mission to dominate India, the British tried to take over Manipur too. Manipuris were not okay with this, though. 
A war erupted in 1891, and sadly, the Manipuri soldiers' spears and swords couldn't stand up to British guns. Only a few days ago, we killed and captured over 11,000... Kangla Fort, the symbolic center of the Manipuri kingdom, fell under the control of some white foreigners who thought they belonged there. The British didn't get to occupy Kangla Fort for too long. Around 60 years after they moved in, they were booted out. It wasn't the Manipuri people getting their independence, though. This time, it was Indian freedom fighters who were expelling the British colonizers. When the world sleeps, India will awake to life and freedom. The Indian revolutionaries didn't return Kangla Fort and the rest of Manipur to Manipuri people, though. Instead, they claimed it as their own. They put the king of Manipur under house arrest and forced him to sign a merger agreeing to be a part of India. Manipuris were conflicted about whether to join the new India. Some said, sure, why not? But others hated the idea. The group that didn't want to be annexed into India decided to do something about it. So those who didn't agree went to Burma and lived underground and started a political struggle for the freedom of Manipur. The Indian Prime Minister wanted complete unification of India. He saw this Manipuri resistance movement as a threat. So here we're at a juncture. India has officially taken over Manipur, but their new nation is under threat due to a secession movement from the former indigenous nation-state of Manipur. What would India do? Allow the secession or fight back? India retaliated. For India, and at that time, the Prime Minister of India, Pandit uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, they were like, they didn't understand us. They just saw, saw this were a group of, you know, wild tribes, you know. So, but at that time, in 1940s, India didn't understand us. They thought we were rebellion, so they brought us under the Union of India, and then they said, all right, it's like, you know, when children didn't, like, obey their parents in the old times, they're, like, just shutting us up or yeah. doing other violent things. That's what they did to us. So they put the martial law, said, let the military handle the indigenous people of Manipur and northeast of India. So the martial law was imposed in 1958 for the first time in the northeast of India. And the Indian prime minister authorized this martial law using a legal mechanism which was once used to suppress his own people's independence movement. The Armed Forces Special Powers Act is an old British colonial act passed in the year 1942, which was set up to thwart Mahatma Gandhi's Quit India movement. The Armed Forces Special Powers Act. The AFSPA. It's a fossil of British oppression that the Indian government is recycling to oppress its own people to this very day. This one act, this one chunk of text, is the crux of what led the 12 elderly women to throw off their clothes in protest. The AFSPA is known far and wide within Manipur and the Northeast, but barely known outside it. As Bina says, The story of Manipur that I'm going to tell is a story which is not even in the textbooks of the world's largest democracy, India. It is not in the narrative of New York Times. It's not in the narrative of many of the things that we usually grew up. A bit of context about the AFSPA. 
The British originally drafted this act to stop Indian independence movements. Of course, they failed and India gained its freedom. But even after Gandhi and other Indian freedom fighters managed to free India from British rule, the AFSPA stayed in the legal code of the country. Because this act was only supposed to be for six months, it's now there for the last 62 years. Right. 62 years, I repeat. So India is the only country in the world which doesn't have a war, but yet have an emergency war-like law called the Armed Forces Special Powers Act, which I call it as the greatest blot in the democratic fabric of India. So to understand the gravity of the AFSPA, I summarized a few of its main clauses to Benjamin. Okay, so Clause 4A. In areas declared quote-unquote disturbed, members of the armed forces can shoot to kill anyone who's breaking a law, carrying anything that can be used as a weapon, or gathering in a group of over five people. Okay, so a member of the army can kill anyone if they're simply in a group of six people or more. Yeah. I mean, that whole clause is just so vague. There's so much wiggle room. The army can basically kill anyone. Like, they could kill someone who's basically jaywalking Mm -hmm. or doing anything, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, any law. And it's very intentionally vague, because in the actual clause, there's a lot of phrases like, as he may consider necessary, or things capable of being used as a weapon. Both of those could mean anything, basically. Right. I'm thinking about this, like, the COVID restrictions we had to go through in the past year. And for that, the punishment from the state might be a fine or maybe a slap on the wrist. But in the case of the AFSPA, there is no disease. And the punishment from the state might even be death. Yeah. We had to go through these COVID restrictions for a year and a half or Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. But people in Manipur have been living under this law for their entire lives. And it doesn't just end there. So let me summarize a few more clauses for you. Okay. So Clause 4B says that armed forces can destroy any structure or shelter that might be used for armed attacks. So if they thought there was rebel activity going on in my house... It yeah. would be completely within mm-hmm. the right to just come in and do yeah. whatever, destroy it. They can just it. come destroy. They can uh-huh. just come destroy yeah. your house. Yeah, exactly. And similar to that, they can also arrest anyone without a warrant um, if they suspect you to be involved in any rebel activity too. And the final clause, clause six, unless the central government specifically sanctions it, no one from the military who acts under these clauses can be prosecuted. So let's say you have a family member and the army suspects them and so they break down their house and then they kill your family member uh-huh. and you're seeking justice. There's nothing you can do against them unless the government specifically requests it. Right. And, you know, if we're being honest, if the government had to choose a side to be on either the side of the indigenous people of Manipur or the side of the army, I feel like it would definitely be the army. They're so tied up Uh with each other. Exactly. And even if a soldier kills someone for no reason at all, there's no accountability. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They can get away completely free. In order to exist, countries have to find a way to keep its smaller entities, for example, states like Manipur, from seceding. India, especially, is a mishmash of dozens of different states that could each stand alone as unique country. But at what cost? 
at the cost of depriving people from the basic insurance that they will be given a reason for torture or disappearance or killing, at the cost of letting the army use violence unchecked. And the AFSPA might be justifiable if there is an active war or secession. But according to Bina, Manipuri people do not want to secede. They just want peace. True, there are some outbursts of violence from rebel factions, but the AFSPA simply makes them more militant and secretive while harming everyday citizens. The AFSPA violates the Indian constitution and international law. It was called a lawless law when it was implemented over 60 years ago, and since then, it allowed the Indian military to rape, torture, disappear, and use indiscriminate violence towards its own citizens. Growing up in Manipur, Bina normalized this type of violence. Only when she went to Delhi to pursue her dream of studying physics did she realize something was wrong. So I came to New Delhi to pursue my physics honors. But somehow, what happens is when you've come away from home, you started understanding home from a different tangent, right? So, and when, when I told my stories to my friends uh, in the university campus, in the dorms, in the university, they thought I was telling these from a film. I was really intrigued by this. Do Indians really not know a state in their own country is under this type of martial law? It's like, for me, if Alabama or something was under martial law and no one else in the U.S. knew. So I asked some of my friends and family members who live in India, and here's what they said. Okay, Sashant, so I'm doing an episode for the podcast about the conflict in Northeast India. What do you know about this conflict? Uh, I actually don't have, like, much of an idea about what you're talking about. Is it got something to do with uh, the new bills, laws that were passed, CA and Citizenship Amendment stuff? Um, no. Okay, then what is it about? What about in just mainstream culture? Like, growing up in India, um, like, what are Indian people's perceptions of Northeast India? It is like a very... My idea of it is very physically, it's very nice and beautiful, like it's very scenic and picturesque. Yeah. But about the political issues over there, I don't know. I really don't know anything. So it's true that many Indians don't know that a state in their country is under martial law. Some of this might be Indian patriotism. People don't want to know of the atrocities of their own army. But I also think much of this isn't ignorance. I suspect that the government doesn't want to let this information out. Remember that special permit everyone has to apply for before they go to Manipur? If it's so tough to go to a place and talk to the people who live there, how are you supposed to know the atrocities that the government is committing against them? Even for Bina, she didn't understand the extent of the problem until she left home. I, for one, thought the area that I grew up was violent, but when you grew up there, we didn't think it was abnormal till I came out. And I realized when uh, other friends heard my experience and couldn't believe me, I think that was for me uh, a defining moment in terms of thinking, oh my God, I grew up in an abnormal condition.
So Bina went back to Manipur, determined to figure out why there was so much violence in her home state. So I packed my bags in Delhi where I was studying and doing my university, and I went back to Manipur, and actually lived backpacking, and actually tried to research the origins of the violence, the kind of guns which have flooded my region, and try to find who is arming our people, who's training us, why there's so much of conflict. And as she traveled through Manipur, tracing where the guns came from and who was providing them to promote violence in her home state, Bina found herself walking in the footsteps of the many Manipuri women activists who had come before her. I spoke to many people to report this episode, and in each conversation, one idea kept coming up again and again. Bina puts it well. The spirit of Manipur lives through its women. The spirit of Manipur lives through its women. That's because women in Manipur have a long history of stepping up to defend their communities. They don't cower behind their men, as Indian women are often expected to do. They stand up in front of them. Manipuri women are described as Mera Paibi, women torch bearers. Metaphorically, they bear the torch of this movement, but they also physically carry torches with flames rising into the night sky as they patrol their streets. That's how they protected their families. Let me tell you about a few instances of Mera Paibi activism. It starts with the British. When the British tried to colonize India, they killed millions of people and were resisted by Indian leaders everywhere. They were used to young male revolutionaries strategizing for independence, but when they showed up in the lush landscape of Manipur, they were met with a totally different scene, a literal wall of women defending their men and their communities. Here's Bina. So the women of Manipur realized that British soldiers don't touch women's bodies. So in 1904, what happened was when the British political agent tried to send the soldiers to forcibly recruit Manipuri men uh, without payment, it was the women who, who formed the body of wall and, and, and negotiated saying, we are, we are not your slaves. If you want our labor, you have to pay wages. It's, it's not the way it's done. Bina noted that the British soldiers don't touch women's bodies. It starts from the stigma surrounding menstruation in Indian culture. Periods are impure and unholy, and men are never supposed to come in contact with period blood in any way, shape, or form. Because Manipuri women use their panics, those sarongs they wear, to take care of their periods, men, from the British army to the Indian army to the police, refuse to touch these items of clothing in public. So the women used this as a strategy and hung panics around their protests. Over the next decades, the Maripaibi protested the many injustices thrown onto Manipur by the British. Here's another example from 1939. Manipur is a part of a very rich rice cultivating area of the world, which extends from Manipur to Yunnan in China. Very rich, we have in Manipur example, uh, Chakhao, which is a 
rice which is lilac in color purple in color you have to come and taste it one day it's it's really good quality rice so what happened is the british together with the marwaris you know the marwaris the business class they were siphoning manipuri rice away from manipur creating artificial food scarcity the women in the markets realized where is our rice going away when they realized it's a businessman together with the british who are siphoning it away they physically topple the rice carts and negotiate it that you you of course you want to export but not at the cost that our children are starving you know the afspa meant that soldiers from the indian army could arrest kill or disappear the youth without legal recourse so the maripaybi had to defend themselves The Maripaybi realized that if they couldn't hold the army accountable for kidnapping or killing their children, they should prevent them from being kidnapped or killed in the first place. The Indian army usually did these things late at night under the cover of darkness. So, the women of Manipur developed a warning system. Remember, this is way before phones. They built bamboo huts around the region and the women took turns keeping watch in these huts. If they saw the army approaching, they would make this loud clanging pattern with a stone. Each pattern sent a specific message, and upon hearing a certain pattern, all the women from nearby villages would converge to defend each other's children, putting their own bodies on the line. The bamboo huts still remain dotted across Manipur today, symbolizing a haven of safety in the midst of armed conflict. Then there's the story of another Maripaybi. Her name is Iram Sharmila. She was called the Iron Lady of Manipur. Known as the Iron Lady of Manipur, Iram Sharmila ended her epic hunger strike. Iram Sharmila was called the Iron Lady of Manipur because she held the world's longest hunger strike. She didn't eat for 16 whole years. Iram Sharmila only stayed alive because the Indian army arrested her, forced a tube up her nose and into her esophagus, and force-fed her liquid nutrients against her will. Iram Sharmila had no weapons. Instead, she made her body a weapon. The Indian army's force-feeding was violating, but it showed one thing. Even with all their armies and tanks and guns, they were scared of the small Manipuri woman. and the government didn't want Iram Sharmila to be a martyr. This leads us to the 12 Imams, the women in the photograph holding the banner that says Indian Army rape us. By the way, Imams means mothers, the 12 mothers. These women were Maripaybi, the women torchbearers. They had been protesting and marching and defending their people for years. But this protest and the story that led up to it is uniquely devastating. I should warn you that it's graphic and disturbing too. Here's the official version. It starts with the Assam Rifles, a paramilitary group operated by the Indian Army. They're stationed in Manipur and the surrounding states, supposedly to monitor and respond to the separatists still lurking in Burma. At some point in 2004, They get wind of a 32-year-old woman named Thangjam Manorama. Manorama has oval glasses, 
a side part in her shining black hair, and a square, kind face. She looks innocent, but the Assam rifles hear that she's actually a dangerous member of a separatist movement, and she specializes in explosives. She seems suspicious. The Assam rifles decide to take action on their suspicion in the early hours of July 11th, 2014, before dawn. In the dark of the night, they drive a truck up to Manorama's house, a cottage off the main road near Imphal, the state's capital. They enter the house and arrest Manorama, then lead her back to their vehicle. She's to be taken in for questioning about her rebel activities, but as they're driving on a dirt road, Manorama tries to escape. She asks to relieve herself, but as soon as she's off the truck, she starts to run as fast as she can. As soon as they realize, the soldiers whip out their guns and aim at Manorama's legs, trying to stop her escape. But it is dark, and she's already far away, and when they catch up to her, they find that their bullets have hit their mark. She's bled to death. So this story sounds convincing, right? The rebel activity, the arrest, the daring escape, and the panic shooting. But do you really believe it? Like many Manipuri women, I don't. Not for a minute. And here's why. The official story eliminated a few key details. Number one, the Assam rifles believed that Manorama was an insurgent, but there was no concrete evidence to prove it. Her family says she was only involved in peaceful protest. Number two, the Assam rifles didn't just stroll into Manorama's house and handcuff her. They rushed into her home without explanation, pointed a gun point blank at her elderly mother, and demanded to see Manorama. When Manorama came out of the room, her hands were roughly tied behind her back and she was gagged. Her family heard her being tortured with a kitchen knife. When her brothers tried to step in, they were beaten up, and then the Assam rifles dragged her out of the house as she was calling to her mother. That was the last time her family saw her alive. Number three, the soldiers said they'd shot at her legs while Manorama tried to flee. Their report assumes she ran fast and far before they could catch up to her. But Manorama's hands were cuffed, and she was wearing a tightly wound panic the sarongs that Manipuri women wear. There's no way she could have outrun seven or eight highly trained soldiers in military gear. Number four, Manorama's severely mutilated body was found in a rice paddy at 5.30 a.m. the next day with numerous gunshot wounds. However, there was no blood around her body. What does this point to? She was shot at another location and then her body was dumped in the rice paddy. There were no gunshot wounds on her legs. Instead, they were all around her genitals, and semen stains were found on her body. It's all but proof that the Indian army not only brutally murdered a likely innocent woman, they tortured and raped her too. Manorama's rape and murder shook the people of Manipur. The community grieved deeply horrified but not surprised that the army that was supposed to protect them 
was assaulting their people once again. Protests erupted everywhere. Several days later, a group of 12 women who were mostly in their 60s and 70s decided to do something the world has never seen before. That's Ima Lurambam, one of the 12 Imas. I could not sleep, but I, I think I must do for Manorama and for the women of Manipur. Without telling anyone, even their husbands, they showed up early one morning in front of the headquarters of the Assam Rifles, which happened to be Kangla Fort, the origin of the Manipur Kingdom. All of a sudden, the women threw their clothes off. They stood in front of the fort, completely naked and vulnerable, their long black hair streaming loose, holding a white banner with red dripping paint that spelled out, Indian Army, rape us. A crowd had gathered, many wept, some felt sick. In video footage of the protest, the soldiers look on from a distance. They shift their feet nervously and look at the ground. They finally feel ashamed. The Manipuri women's active protests are poetic. These stories of sarong-clad, aging women coming together to rise up against one of the biggest armies in the world. But what do they mean beyond that? I talked to Benjamin about some ideas. So I feel like we often don't see any female leaders. But when we do, I think they're often put on a pedestal for working on things that are specifically women's issues, like, mm-hmm. like sexual assault or girls' education. Yeah, or women's suffrage, things like reproductive justice. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's a lot less often, I think, that we see women put on this pedestal for issues relating to war or sovereignty or, like, statehood, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, when women do venture into these spheres that are considered men's spheres, Uh they have to adopt masculine characteristics to be taken seriously, right? Interesting, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that, ma- that makes sense. Yeah. What examples were you thinking of? Okay, so when I was thinking of this, I thought of Joan of Arc, because I liked okay. Joan of Arc as a kid. Do you remember? Yeah, that, she was like, like, French warrior. Yeah, she was a French female warrior. Okay. And she became a saint, actually. Really? But at the time, in the 1400s, people were really upset that she wore men's clothing, and they threatened her because of it. You see, dressed as a man again. This girl is a witch and tomorrow she will burn for it. Oh, and she had to wear men's clothing Mm -hmm. to become a warrior? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then in a parallel, like, does that remind you of any Disney movie? Oh, any Disney movies. Mulan. Oh, I've never watched that movie. Really? Yeah. It's my favorite. We'll have to watch it. Okay, well, let me summarize it for you. So basically, um, it's set in China, and the army tries to recruit Mulan's father, who's, like, okay. getting kind of old. And so Mulan's like, I'm not going to let this happen. Mm-hmm. I am going to pretend to be a man and step in. 
and it's how she becomes a successful warrior. But even in that case, right, she is the hero of the story because she dresses like her father and like dresses like a man and pretends to be a man. Mr. I'll make a man out of you. And then even more recently we can see this because um, in the political sphere in the U.S. today, when we look at figures like Hillary Clinton or Kamala Harris, um, a lot of times they have to act more masculine and play down their feminine right. behaviors yep. to be taken seriously. Like Hillary Clinton didn't really mention gender mm -hmm. in her campaign. Um, and similarly, if we look at their clothing. Yeah, the um, pantsuits. The pantsuits, uh -huh. exactly. Much more masculine than something maybe a typical first lady would wear. Right. She's always worn the pantsuit in the family. Now Hillary Clinton, the former first lady, former secretary of state. So unlike Joan of Arc and Mulan and Hillary Clinton and Kamala Harris, the women of Manipur embraced their femininity. Think about the 12 imams. They cried, they screamed, they threw off their clothes and bared their breasts, and they let their long hair stream down their backs. They were so feminine, and that was their strength. So why is femininity centered in Manipuri women's activism when women try to be more masculine in so many other instances, like Joan of Arc and Mulan in American politics? They used the taboo and shame that had been imposed on them as a strategy to defend themselves. This was a moment where the women shed the gaze of shame from their own bodies and turned it back onto the people who are raping their mothers, sisters, and daughters. The women's protests in Manipur have been effective. The Maripaibi have saved their husbands, their children, and each other from being stolen and starved for hundreds of years now. But it's a David and Goliath situation, and they have a long way to go. So where are they now? In August 2016, Iram Sharmila, the Iron Lady of Manipur who had been force-fed with the nasal tube, stood in front of a crowd of journalists and spectators. Her unkempt hair framed her pale and weary face. Tears rolled down her cheeks as she licked a dab of honey from her fingers. It was her first time eating in 16 years. It didn't symbolize freedom, though. It signaled a shift to new methods to protest the AFSPA. After their naked protest, the 12 Imas were arrested. Even in jail, they fasted to show they were not giving in. Their protest was not just symbolic. It sparked so much rage and unity across the state that the Indian Army withdrew the AFSPA for a few limited areas in Imphal. In what could be a landmark judgment against the controversial Armed Forces Special Powers Act, the Guwahati High Court has authorized the state of Manipur to act on the report of the one-man commission in the alleged rape and killing of Manorama Devi by the armed forces in 2004. People in these regions are now legally protected from being shot and killed for mere suspicion. In addition, the Kangla Fort, that grand building on the river that once was the center of the Manipuri Kingdom, was returned to the people. Finally. The Assam rifles left quietly. I hope they were surrounded by a cloud of shame. Today, the 12 Imas are still protesting. Yet, the AFSPA still looms in the majority of Manipur 
and Thangjam Manorama's murderers are still free. Finally, Bina. Bina is one of today's leaders drawing inspiration from the Maripaibi. She is a torchbearer of this movement. She runs two nonprofits, the Manipuri Women's Gun Survivors Network and the Control Arms Foundation of India. She's been speaking on panels and stages around the world. This is one of the worst militarized zones in the whole world. We have got 300,000 Indian army on our soil. Here's a clip from a TED talk she gave. An army law called the Armed Forces Special Powers Act, which gives any armed forces personnel the right to shoot to kill anyone on mere charges of suspicion. That means if an army jawan suspects you, they can shoot you dead and no law in the country will allow you to be prosecuted. Okay, is this fair? Is this fair? Very quiet. I thought so. Because we looked at the Indian constitution. People have no idea that this conflict exists and they're always captivated by Bina's knowledge and charisma. The fact that people don't know about it is the first thing that needs to change, Bina says. A lot of it starts, as you said, support and solidarity that can come in is in terms of just listening to one another, just like exactly that you're doing here today. Recording our story is so important. Remember that activism, it knows, it's not just when you take a banner and march in the streets. There's just one, one percentile of an entire movement that one can do. A lot of it is in proper documenting, integrating the, in research, writing, and analysis, what you, have, you are hearing today, and then questioning the different forms of knowledge learning that's been done through mm -hmm. our universities and our institutions, because our knowledge learning is so colonial, it's yeah. so one-sided, that the stories of so many struggles are continuing to be unreported. Bina's right. After speaking to her, I proposed to write a paper on the AFSPA for a human rights class in college. I was told there simply wasn't enough information. But there is. It's just that we're listening to the wrong people, returning to textbooks and mass media instead of activists like Bina herself. So to Bina, solidarity is researching and documenting this issue. And congrats! By listening to this episode, you have taken the first step towards fulfilling Bina's vision. The story of Manipur is not simple, but Bina's vision is strikingly simple. In the indigenous areas of Northeast, we're asking the government of India to adhere to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which says no one should be shot, killed, tortured, raped, or made to disappear without a warrant. When I talked to Bina, she was in exile. She couldn't tell me where she was, but she told me why. Uh, one of our uh, leader's sons um, shot dead a 19-year-old boy. And the mother came to our, of our office asking for help because he is such a powerful um, politician that no human rights group, no lawyer in Manipur wanted to help the yeah. family. Yeah. For us, oh, we have never taken sides. We have always taken the side of justice, fearlessly. So same thing, when the mother came to us, the only question I asked was what helped you? And she said, I want a lawyer to file a case. And that's all we did, Trisha. We got a Supreme Court lawyer to fight for this mother's case for this killing of her only son. And for this, I was severely threatened. 
the mother was severely threatened, my lawyer was severely threatened. If criminals are in power, they will twist and throw you out of our own lands, our own nations. This is what happened to me. So what do you do when you're persecuted and exiled? What do you do when the army that's supposed to defend you can kill you without reason? What do you do when martial law that was meant to last for three months lasts for 62 years? Well, if you have strong women leaders standing behind you, you don't give up. When violence is done to you, two things. Either you become depressed and you give it up. What is the other way? You fight back. And that's exactly what the women of Manipur did. That's exactly what we did. We decided to fight back. And now for our credits. This podcast was created on Lenape land in New York. Andrew Dewey composed our theme music. Otis Gray gave us feedback as our editorial advisor and mentor. Jesse Sheldon designed our cover art, and Nick Bluebird Lane designed our episode art. Naina Durga designed our website, and Metsi Nieves administered our social media. This podcast is supported by funds from a Creativity and Innovation at Colorado College Student Seed Innovation Grant. I'm Trisha McCurgy. I'm Benjamin Swift. And thank you for listening to People Place Power. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to follow and rate the show. You can also follow us on Instagram at People Place Power and email us your thoughts at hello at peopleplacepower.com. If you want to learn more or donate to our production fund, check out our website at peopleplacepower.com. See you in two weeks with our next episode. <laughs>